0: You're listening to episode five of Sometimes On, a podcast when we feel
1: like it. Today, we join our very own Eric Korsh and Aaron McPherson from Maker Studios as they discuss data versus creativity. Hi, this is Eric Korsh. I'm the SVP of brand content at Digitas Studios, part of Digitas LBI, talking to you about data and creativity. And I'm here with Aaron McPherson from Maker, who's going to talk to us and part about Maker Labs and some other things.
0: Hi, Eric, thanks for having me. I'm Aaron McPherson, Chief Content Officer at Maker Studios.
1: So I'm gonna jump right in because this is a podcast and no one can see my pause, my creative pause. So we talked uh, a little bit in preparation about this, data versus creativity as kind of um, a classic argument, one versus another but I think you had a different idea about data and creativity. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you guys at Maker are changing that framing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I find as I speak on panels and read other industry writing and watch other industry leaders talk, everyone likes to set up a data versus creativity conversation, right? I always see it being set up that it's data versus creativity. And um, you know, of course, the media loves opposites and loves to sort of set up controversy. And I'm often asked, what's smarter, data or creatives? Like, do we still need human beings in all of this stuff? And, you know, my answer would be, why is it a versus? Why isn't data a critical part of the creative process? Why don't we look at data as something that itself can be a gateway to creativity? I mean, if you think about it, insights that we draw from data That's just a version of storytelling, right, with the data as your raw material, and you're really pulling out a story, and that requires, uh, you know, an excessive amount of creativity and insightfulness. Um, At Maker, we are absolutely marrying data with creativity. We have an initiative called Maker Labs, and that's the actual foundation of it, is taking data and insights that we've got here at Maker and also partnering with third parties, and using it literally to inform the creative process from the get-go. So we start with data, we use data to measure the kind of content we're making, measure performance, and then iterate and get better.
1: So let me ask you a, a question even tracking back a little bit because you know we've had different kinds of data for a long time. We've had storytelling for a long time. Why is this conversation so prevalent now, do you think?
0: With the rise of programmatic, um, that seems to be the magic word. Um, I think we are, we are ever fascinated with data and what we can do with data and how we can leverage data. And of course the democratization of content, YouTube, which is the biggest platform for maker is of course something that's blown the distribution, uh, the distribution ecosystem wide open. So I think now more than ever, you know, is data king or is content king? And I think the answer is both. Um, And it's hot right now because we're seeing data being used in ever increasing ways to deliver both ad messages and content. Yet at the same time, right, we're seeing a renaissance in content, right? Everyone's talking about the fact that TV's never been better insofar as the content that's being created for TV.
1: That's a great point. So I think few people would argue the data in terms of a point of distribution, Um, but as it meets creativity, I mean, are you suggesting that it's the unleashing of modern data that's driving this great content in this, let's call it the new golden age of TV?
0: You could say that because what data has done and certainly what the internet has done is it's created such an abundance of content, an overload, if you will, of content that TVs had to get better, right? I mean, that's what everyone, everyone that I know says, and I agree with it. It's that in, in an excess of supply, TV had to keep up. And so I think it is one of the catalysts to the Renaissance in content has been the fact that content has to try harder to reach its audience.
1: So maybe um, pre- premium content has actually become premium meaning you know, the, shows, <laughs> yeah. the shows are good. You know, The old golden age of TV is, is gone. They had to rise to the top. So we, let's talk a little bit about um, the supposition about Netflix and how they were using, or some people think they were not using data, to drive either the stars in their shows or the genre, or who would see the tiles when they logged on. How impactful has data been for a company like Netflix or Amazon?
0: According to those companies, very impactful, right? Um, although it's a black box a little bit to the rest of us because we don't get to see it. We just get to hear their leadership talk about it. And, of course, at dinner tables around L.A., where I live, um, you know, studio heads and others often like to say, well, gee, I could make a really good guess with data that a filmmaker like David Fincher... And a talent like Kevin Spacey, gee, that's a real gamble that they'd make a hit show. You know, the joke being that what kind of data did you need to tell, um, to tell you that House of Cards wouldn't be a hit, right? And it was, of course, a hit property over in the UK. So um, there's a little bit of cynicism um, at times about it. Um, what I think is it's been it's been incredibly important for them, if for no other reason as a validator. And we use it that way at Maker as well. So we think content is great, or we think a certain YouTube star is charismatic and extremely talented. And we use data to confirm that. So we use data to actually, you know, check ourselves, if you will. And in that way, at the very least, Amazon and, uh, and Netflix, I think, have, have been able to use the data to validate what their creative executives, you know, what their instincts are.
1: That's pretty interesting, because in some ways, you're making me think that in this world of data, the first thing you said is, well, Netflix is a little bit invisible to us or you know opaque. We actually, we can tell that media, as we talked about in the beginning, has picked up Orange is the New Black and, and House of Cards and brought it across the finish line, we think. We don't really know, short of maybe social listening and tools like that. Uh, but if you judge by the media, maybe shows like Hemlock Grove or Bloodline. Um, We don't see any real traffic around social listening there. So there's like a dearth of data on these other shows and yet they continue to make them. And then I'd compare that to Amazon that really, maybe they're using data, but they had a different model, right? We, We will do a traditional kind of pilot run and then we'll pick the winners and then we'll go. And they didn't really see success until a pretty out-of-the-box show, transparent, that again, maybe it's questionable how much data rode that. So where do you think where does all this data take us? If if, if Netflix is still opaque but doing their business, Amazon tried a different model, had success, but you know, not in the way we expected. Where can this data take content? And you can bring it back to maker or whatever else you're seeing in the market.
0: Yeah, you've made a bunch of interesting points, right? One being both Netflix and Amazon, I believe, used what HBO did years before. And that is they trusted the creatives that they, you know, that they gave the project to, and then they stuck with it. And and you're right, to some extent, Um, They have some programs that are under the radar, except they might have small cult followings. And then they've had some big breakout programs that have won awards and gotten a lot of media attention. That's actually something I've always felt, is that the media plays a huge role in perception still. So there's no amount of data that, that replaces sort of a halo that a certain program can have on it. And actually, in the medium I work in, which is short form, primarily, and YouTube, you know, look at the media's attention now on YouTube influencers and look at what's happened there, right? Um, One of our talents at Maker, PewDiePie, he's the biggest star on YouTube. He's been named one of the top 30 most influential people recently, I believe by Forbes, and things like that affect perception and of course affect the ad market as much as anything. To your question about data. The promise of data isn't just to inform the creative decisions that human beings are making. I think where we really can see data evolve is in and around delivery of content and discovery of content. This is where tracking my behavior across the internet you know, whether you think it's Big Brother or not, it's happening, can actually get, ads get smarter and smarter and content gets smarter and smarter. And the promise of that is that I turn on my laptop, I power up my phone, I turn on my Apple TV, and I'm delivered a personalized playlist of content that appeals directly to me. So I think that's where data, where else data can show up for us, is in ensuring that everything we're looking at is relevant.
1: Yeah, so I I think that that discovery model, but I know that you have some concerns about when you take the discovery model to the nth degree and you are over-personalized. Can you talk about that as sort of a stopper for sort of serendipitous discovery?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is something when I was at Yahoo that we talked a lot about because the Yahoo homepage has been personalized for many, many years. And it's constantly getting smarter and more optimized. And in a way, we would say, can you over-optimize it? So I love entertainment, but do I want my entire homepage? There were certain days when my entire homepage was entertainment stories. And yet, are there stories that I just need to know because I'm a human being you know, on this earth that I need to know about a terrorist act, you know, happening in the Middle East, or about something environmental or some new discovery around cancer or human health. And that's where serendipity, or again, we get back to human beings, you know, there's a role of an editor-in-chief, if you will, at a newspaper or a programmer for a television network who makes decisions, you know, this is something that People need to know, regardless of of what the machines say today.
1: It makes me think you—if everyone had a slider on their computer that went from you know random to personalized, and you could dial it up, you know, just show me what you know I'm interested in today. And an hour later, you want to surf the web, and you're like, you know what? Let's open the fire hose a little bit and see what else is going on in the world.
0: I, I love that. I think you. I think you should right away. Let's patent it. <laughs> um, because think about think if you could take your slider as well to people I admire, which is a little bit what I think Twitter emulates or social platforms. Yeah. You know, let me let me see what Eric's what Eric's what's interesting to Eric today, what's interesting to me today, and then what does yeah, this editor I respect think is important. And then what's most popular, what's trending. Um and I think that data there in delivery, we've just seen the beginning of that. Data and creativity. Um, I think we've just seen the beginning of two. You know, at Maker, we are trying to and working toward, I should say, leveraging over 2 billion lines of code that we process here at Maker every day that's proprietary to our 55,000 channels. And we're taking that and reading trends, reading into um, any topic from James Franco, who's a lab partner, to different video game titles, to music, and what genres of music are trending. And then my development team is taking that data and actually using it to create content. We're using that to actually ride the wave and try to predict where the wave is headed next.
1: So you hit on two things that I think are, are interesting. You talked about you know predicting waves and we talked before a little bit about this. I had this theory that if we can't use data to not just predict, but literally create musical hits, then how can we have these outsized expectations for more complex content that includes video and actors and things like that? And and you brought up this idea about how that data might inform creative through trends. But then there's also this other idea that I know you're really interested in. We are at Digitas as well, which is Moving demographics away from demographics over to behavioral sort of insights. So you know, maybe you can address both of those. They're totally different points. Sorry about that, but
0: <laughs> no, no, it, this
1: is your choice is to take them in any order you want. That'll be your your choice.
0: So we'll talk about behavioral data, which. Um, which to us is more interesting and relevant. And you're right. Yesterday I used the example that, you know, I'm a a mid-40s career woman who might in many ways fit my demo perfectly, but in other ways I don't. I'm a huge boxing fan. And because I run content at Maker, I watch a ton of YouTube gaming video. That would be completely outside of, of my demographic profile. And yet with my behavioral profile, I might find, you know, I have huge interest in boxing documentaries and anything to do with the fight world. And that, that to us is where the real magic can happen because we can reach people's interests. And I guarantee you every person out there has several things that are absolutely surprising about them that come from somewhere we don't expect. And that's, that's a promise that, that I think brands can start to fulfill is reaching that customer that doesn't fit their demographic profile.
1: Yeah, that's the you know promise of being a human being. <laughs> like we cannot right. be fully codified.
0: Right, and and of course, we talked about the fact that human beings are by nature irrational at times. And if you look at advertising, right, the most famous advertising messages are often based on those irrational We could call them irrational or deep-seated desires, to be loved, to be attractive, to be sexy, to be admired, and that we buy things or we make purchasing decisions or other kinds of um, material decisions based on these very deep-seated emotional desires that may not even be um, conscious. And um, how do those play themselves out through data? And, uh, you know... As we get smarter about video, and I don't think we're, we've are we even scratched the surface about video, we do know certain things. We know how long people watch a video. We know how many views are on a video. We know what video someone watches after they watch a particular video. But as we get smarter and smarter around the human interaction with content, I think we can deliver even more interesting kinds of creative, right? I mean, everyone talks about the day when retinal, dis- retinal display Will be able to tell us exactly where someone's looking. I and mean, you can imagine a world, and this does get Orwellian, where someone can monitor your heart rate, your pulse, your temperature. Is this content turning you on? You know, all of that kind of stuff. But from a creative standpoint, that's really exciting because our creators that we work with, they've actually taught me a lot as a programmer. They listen, they are first creators, but second listeners. They listen to their audience and in fact they're not so, um, should I say wedded to their ideas that they won't change them based on what their audience tells them. So our biggest YouTube stars are constantly iterating and changing their creative based on the feedback they're getting from their audience.
1: And and that's sort of, it sounds like that's in, in some ways a combination of analog feedback or you know. Uh, the dialogue inside the comments section plus the data that you're getting, right? So there's no, they're not just looking at a spreadsheet and then deciding what to do.
0: Exactly. They are reading the comments and, you know, look at a series like Epic Rap Battles, which is one of our series that's the longest running and biggest series on YouTube, one of the longest running. It's going into its fifth season. They're shooting it right now and it gets 40 million views an episode on average. The creators, Pete and Lloyd, look at every comment. And the first episode had, I think, about 250 comments, and now they get hundreds of thousands of comments. So you're right, some of those are analog, but then they're also looking at our dashboard and saying, why did we get a drop off at two minutes, 30 seconds? What did we do at two minutes, 30 seconds that turned off 20% of our audience?
1: So by the- And they'll
0: go in and they'll fix that.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Well, I I was just thinking that if I could extend that logic to my favorite football team's coach so that he would read the comments and react on the field, <laughs> it would make it more interesting for me and the fans, maybe.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up. When I, um, I used to work at a company called Live Planet years ago, I'd call it Web 1.0. It was Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's digital company, Project Greenlight was one of the programs that we, that we launched. Another program that never got off the ground was called General Manager. And the promise of that is that the audience would actually use technology to manage a baseball team. I think it came out of their love of the Red Sox and their frustration that they couldn't pick the batting lineup. <laughs> um, and, and this again gets to like, is, is the data, the data often is an aggregation of, right, Human behavior on on massive scale is the data smarter or is your favorite football coach smarter? And um, as maddening as the decisions sometimes that are made in the in the in the coach's seat or in the editor's seat, that person is making those decisions based on a set of criteria they believe to be true. I will tell you, um, millennials, you know as often used as that word is, but I'll say anyone under 30 does anticipate that they have a voice in the matter, whether that voice is responding to a comment on a YouTube box or creating their own video or their own Instagram or tweet in response to something. It is very much a two-way dialogue, not a one-way passive viewing experience. And that's been something I've adjusted to as a programmer. I, I I don't sit in the tower and make the decisions by myself and it does stem from do you think human beings are smart enough to make their own decisions and should they be guiding the storyline of a television show and you know this is almost like government you know do we need to protect people from themselves um back to when we were talking about the golden age of television if you look at a lot of the programming that is now flourishing it's programming that would not appeal to the masses right like yeah. shameless on showtime Um, Or, you know, these provocative Nurse Jackie or any number of programs. I mean, let's be honest, the House of Cards itself with protagonists that are questionably likable, right, if not loathable. And so that's, that's actually the antithesis of listening to the audience, although the audience in the end loves it because it has such a strong voice, because it has picked a lane and made a decision and stuck with it. And so there is a balance here. I mean, in my my business and on our platform, it's essential to listen to the audience. But maybe on a platform like Netflix or a platform like HBO, it's essential to stay with a voice. And I think, you know, if you talk to most of our creators, they'd say, well, my voice is essential too. It's what my audience comes back for. It's my authenticity and my honesty and my, you know, My desire, though, to listen to them, to say, I heard you and I'm responding. And in that way, um, it's kind of apples and oranges. The kind of content that we make is by nature an intimate connection uh, between audience and fan. And the kind of content that Netflix is making and that HBO is making is, you know, storytelling of a different sort.
1: So thank God there's 330 million people. There's room for all the content then.
0: Yes. Yeah. A- absolutely. Now it's just about how do we find time to watch it all?
1: <laughs> yeah. So All right. So my for the final uh, question I have, we'll wrap it up with, so what's more important to you, data or creative? <laughs> and you have to pick. Oh, you no. You can't use a slider. You can't use my slider.
0: God, you're making this really difficult, Eric. You end with a bang. I'm going to have to fall on the side of creative. Could be my my Hollywood background.
1: I'm right with you. And, and you know, you we can asterisk it, but I guess I'd, I'd, I'd vote the same way.
0: Yeah, I'd say data makes creative smarter. There you go. Data enhances creative, but it's got to be creative has to be there. And creative, to me, flows from a place of honesty, um, regardless. I mean, that's where... House of Cards and Game of Thrones and shameless and then frankly, epic rap battles all have commonality in that they were authentic to the vision of the of the artist.
1: But somewhere there's there's an exit you know uh, a voting exit pollster telling you yes <laughs> data data actually yeah. will will make the truth. You were just saying it, you know so there, there's some there's some version where data exceeds creative and authenticity.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I got to, yeah, I got to go with creative. You're making me pick.
1: Okay. Just,
0: just, you know, just as I, as I continue to talk about Maker Labs, um, through the new front season, don't make me restate that since Maker <laughs> Labs is very much a data plus creative holding hands, you know, making out on the park bench. There's no, there's no need for them to be diametrically opposed. And in fact, um, is is there a poetry itself in data? And we would say yes.
1: So I agree, but then don't call on me if I raise my hand and you're speaking at the new front because I might re-ask that.
0: <laughs> okay, you got a deal. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Well, I really hope my retina display never starts tracking whether or not the content I'm watching is heating me up. This episode of Sometimes On was sponsored by our kick-ass friends and experts in content at Above Average and at Upworthy. Head over to our YouTube page to see them in our New Front Revelations video series. And as always, a big thanks to the humans we still need, our production team, Chris, Barbara,
1: Avi, Colin, and me, George Hammer. Till next time, adios.